James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. James says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now these two sections that we're going to look at tonight don't look like they go together at all. But you got to keep in mind, when God, through the Holy Spirit, was writing this letter from James to his recipients... It wasn't broke down in chapter one, chapter two. This was a letter that he wrote. And there's a continual flow here. And these two sections do go together. I'm not going to show you how until a little bit later, but hopefully in time you'll see how they go together. And when we do, hopefully that'll be some help to you. James says the one who sets himself or herself up as a judge of other people is trying to take a role that only God can fill. Now, we're going to let this sink in for a little bit here because we know this, but we don't. But when you make judgments about other people, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, and by the way, let's just go there right now. Is it not easy right now to quickly jump to conclusions about the people we see in the news and in the world? And especially in this month called Pride Month, even though the Bible says pride's a sin, we, we in America want to have a month of it. You know, this kind of a thing. It's very easy for us to look at the world and make judgments. And it's easy sometimes for us to make judgments about the people in the church. We'll talk more about that later on. But the Bible is very, very clear that there's only one judge. There's only one lawgiver and only one judge, and that's who? That's God. Jump over to chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 9. We're going to come back to this passage when we get to that section in a couple of weeks. But look, look ahead. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, the real judge, is standing at the door. So we're going to break this down when we get there in a couple of weeks. But just notice, tied to our waiting for the return of Jesus Christ is an understanding that when he comes, he's going to be the judge. And we are not to be the judge in the meantime, because he's the only one who is able to be the judge. And here's why. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Go to Isaiah chapter 11 and look at verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 5. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. By the way, that shoot coming from Jesse was David. And a branch from his roots or David's roots shall bear fruit. Does you all know who the branch is, right? That came from David is Jesus. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on upon him, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, if you count those, you'll find the seven spirits of God mentioned in Revelation. And his delight, Jesus's delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. So when Jesus comes, he's going to make judgments, but he's not going to make judgments by what his eyes see or even what his ears hear. How can God, how can Jesus, when he comes and now even, even so now, how can he make judgments without his eyes and his ears? Because he knows everything and he knows people's hearts. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17. In verse 9, it tells us that the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. But look at verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jump over real quickly with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And look at verses 1 through 5. And we're going to kind of put this all together. Paul said, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says it's required of those stewards to be held accountable and be faithful. But he goes, I don't care if I'm judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Why? He said, because really right now I don't know of anything against myself. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. Because I don't even really fully know my own heart. Have you ever noticed that the longer we walk with the Lord, the more you start to realize how messed up you are? By the way, if you don't realize that, you're not walking with the Lord. If you think you're getting better and better and better, something's amiss because the closer we walk with the Lord and the more he's allowed to shape us, yes, we will see more evidence of his spirit within us, yet at the same time, we actually start to realize more and more of how wretched we really were and are. That's why Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. You have to realize this is later in his life. This is after having seen the Lord and all the ministry experiences that he had seen and, and had been a part of. That's why Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Thank God for his grace. And let me tell you, I got saved in 1973 at eight years old. And I can tell you this much. I've been walking with the Lord since 1973, and I am so glad he saved me at eight years old because who knows what kind of a wretch I would have been if he hadn't have saved me early because I know how much of a sinner and temptation to sin is still in me now, even though I've been born again. And so if you guys really don't even know your own heart, and by the way, God puts us through things in our lives to keep showing us where we really are. We've already talked about that 
a couple weeks ago where the Lord says, I want to open this door. Remember that? If you really don't even know your own heart and he's showing you things about yourself that you didn't even know were there. How are we to be able to know everybody else's heart? We see the wickedness of the world and it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions. Do you remember back years ago when the Christians were taken and put on that beach and they were all individually put to death and the whole world saw it? Remember the terrorists were killing the Christians and cutting their heads off? But how many of us would have jumped to conclusions about Paul himself, Saul of Tarsus? Who, how many of us prior to him getting saved would have ever known that Saul of Tarsus, who was a terrorist against the Christians, going town to town to have them arrested and put to death, approving, standing there approving of Stephen's stoning. How many of us at that moment would have said, oh, he's going to become one of the greatest Christian leaders. But aren't we glad that he is and God's used him in our life and so much? But if we had been the judge, we would have watched him standing there holding the coats while Stephen was stoned and we would have written him off. Folks, I'm just going to say to you, we should never approve of sin. And we're going to go down that road in a little bit tonight. Yet at the same time, we need to daily remind ourselves there is a judge and he's coming and he's the only one that really knows people's hearts. And we need to keep that in mind. Well, go to Romans 14. We'd already studied this when we, we did our study of Romans, but you guys will never be done with Romans. Look at verses 1 through 12. It says, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, don't invite him over so you can convince him of your view. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, because we know who the real master is. The Lord is able to make him stand. Now one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So when we make judgments about others, who are we trying to be? God. Now, don't miss that because that's going to be the key link in this whole section. We still want to be God. Oh, I don't want to be God. Yeah, you do. It's in you still. It's in your flesh. 
Even though you've been born again and I've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ and we're a new creation, we're still living in these old bodies that are still under the curse. And what was the attitude that Satan came to Adam and Eve with? You get to be like God. You get to say right and wrong, good and evil. You get to call the shots. Now, some would say, wait a minute, Jim. Doesn't the Bible say that as Christians, we are to make some judgments? Because there's a lot of people that love to quote Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. And they just love to throw that out. But actually, if you go on with the rest of that passage, we're not for the sake of time going to take you there. But in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, look, before you go and help your brother who's got this toothpick in his eye, get the two by four out of yours. So that you can then see clearly to help your brother. There are times that we are to make judgments, but listen closely. But it's only under the proper conditions and only the truly mature in spirit and only those who are going to help, doing it to help. I'm going to say it to you again. The Bible does say that we are to make judgments, but only in the proper conditions. Only the truly mature in the spirit at that time are going to be able to do that. And only those who are desiring to help. Go to Galatians chapter 6. If you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in this passage as it talks about helping your brother who's caught in a transgression. You'll notice that the context quickly jumps from the person you're trying to help to you. Go to Galatians 6. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in, a, in any transgression, by the way, that doesn't mean they did it once. This doesn't mean they're, they're trapped. Some translations say trapped. That's a good translation of this word. If anyone is caught or trapped in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Did anybody notice how Galatians 6.1 quickly stopped talking about this brother who was caught in the sin? Who does it spend all this time talking about? The person that was going to help. You who are spiritual, first of all, and you need to do it in a spirit of gentleness. You, but before you even go there, you need to check yourself. That's why in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and following, when Peter is writing to the elders in the church, he says, keep watch over yourselves and of the flock that's under your care. In other words, pastors can't shepherd the flock until they shepherd their own self first. So are we to make judgments? Are we to help a brother and sister? Because it means really easy to say, well, I'm not going to look at anybody else. I'm just going to look at me and we'll have nothing to do with anybody else. I'll just let them live their life and I'll let God settle it all at the end. No, no, the Bible says we're to help each other. 1 Thessalonians 5 says encourage each other, help the weak, encourage the timid. We are to be involved in each other's lives, but only if we are doing it to help them and not to make ourselves feel better by pointing out how they're not doing it as good as I am. And folks, you got to admit, we live in a day and age where everybody's ready now to tell you how they do it because it's theirs the best way. And with the internet and social media now, everybody's an influencer. 
They all want to be God. They're calling it being influencers, but everybody wants to be God. My method is the best method. Oh, you're just doing it wrong. And by the way, husbands and wives, that's one of the biggest areas you guys have your fights. You don't do it the same way, would you? You don't even cook a roast the same way. You don't, you, you, everybody's got a different attitude on how things ought to be done. My wife was raised a certain way, and I've raised a certain way, and we love each other, but buddy, when it comes to doing stuff, she does it all wrong. <laughs> and she thinks I'm nuts because I don't do it the way she does it. Without realizing it, we have to understand that in those times that we're to help our brother or sister who is caught in a transgression, we have to first make sure, is this something that really is a transgression or I just think they could do it a better way? And when I say I'm thinking you could do it a better way, D, I'm really saying my way's better. And now as I help you, I'm building myself up. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why the Galatians says you better check yourself first. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We do have wisdom. We do have knowledge. Go to 1 Corinthians 2. Look at verses 1 through 16. Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, a, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We're impressed by the powerful, gifted speakers. Paul says, I actually came well, he said in verse 4, my speech and my message weren't in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, there's that word again, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit, their foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I don't have time to break this down. I could take the rest of tonight breaking this all down. But let me just paraphrase it for you. Paul said, when I came to preach to you, I didn't come to impress you with my words of wisdom and my flashy speech. I came in humility and meekness and fear, and I just preached Christ and him crucified. By the way, that's foolishness to those who are, being, are lost. But it's the power of God for us who are saved. And I did it that way for a reason. So that your faith wouldn't rest in, boy, he's a really good speaker. 
but your faith would rest in the power of God. By the way, that goes against everything that is our mindset today in churches. Don't we go to churches today looking for the ones we like, the preaching we like, the music we like? What if we actually went looking for the power of God, where the word was being preached and God's power was demonstrated? It didn't tickle our ears, but you know what? There's truth there. But then he goes on and he says, we actually do have wisdom. We are to impart wisdom, but it's not our wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. And we're just to share what God has said. But Jim, they don't understand it. Well, that's between them and God. Our job is to just share it. But Jim, we need to make it more palatable. We need to make it more understandable. Folks, let me say this to you as nicely as I can. This is why our churches are the messes they are, is because back in the 70s and 80s, we went into this church growth movement and we decided, how, what can we do to make our churches bigger? How can we get bigger crowds? And in order to get bigger crowds, we started to say, let's make the message easier to grasp. Let's, just, let's make it a little more palatable. Let's soften it a little bit because we are more interested in more people coming than we are with truth. And he actually says, the spiritual person judges all things. We have insight, we have wisdom, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who understands the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So now we've got this wrestling match. Let me give it to you this way. When Jesus walked on the earth, He was 100% man, but he was also 100% God, correct? Do you think that as God and being all-knowing and living in human form, that he saw problems everywhere? Do you not think that he had plenty of opportunity to point out all the errors around him? But he didn't. We find out later on that Judas was stealing from the treasury. Jesus, we don't see anywhere there, ever dealt with it. Judas had bigger issues than just dealing with the treasury from the treasury. So in other words, Jesus, even though he had wisdom and was capable of making spiritual judgments, didn't speak about everything he saw. But only spoke when the father said, this is something I want you to say and I want you to say it now. When I first started in this traveling ministry to go help churches get turned back around, God's gifted me with discernment. Usually I can walk into a church and within a few minutes, I'll give you an idea who the power people are and what's really going on and some of the deeper things that God showed me. And unfortunately, because I was young and stupid, I used to go and point it all out. By the way, I wasn't invited back in a lot of places. And God said, just because I showed you doesn't mean you're supposed to. Lord, I just assumed that you showed it to me. I'm supposed to say something. And I had to learn that he shows me so that I'll know what's going on, realize what's happening, but then know how to pray, and I only speak to what he tells me to speak to when he tells me to speak. You're able to make judgments, but you're only to make those judgments or reveal those judgments when, if you're mature spiritually, and you've examined your heart first, and you're doing it in a way that it's going to build up, not to build you up, build them up. Go back to James chapter 3. Look again at verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and it's demonic. For where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, where these exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I've said this before, and I'll say it again and again and again and again until it sinks into my heart. Maybe you need to hear it again, too. All through the scriptures, whenever I see someone having a righteous, indignant response, they were wrong. Lord, tell my sister to help me. Actually, Martha, what Mary's chosen is best. Lord, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. That's not why I'm here. Lord, we saw people preaching in your name and they weren't part of our group, so we told them to stop. Actually, they're on our side. And you just told people that we're on our side to stop. Lord, do you want us to call fire down on them? Guys, that's not what we're here for. Oh, what about this waste, this perfume? This could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Actually, guys, what she just did will be preached everywhere the gospel's preached. I could go on. I've said it to you before, and I want to say it to you again. We just saw here in James chapter 3 that those who are spiritually mature and have real wisdom, they're open to reason. Just assume, humbly, that your first indignant response is wrong. You watch TV tonight, and you see another commercial with a gay couple, and you want to get angry? By the way, it used to be that I would say, hey, look, now it's everyone. And my first reaction in my mind is righteous indignation. And God says, I want you to have my heart. Again, we're never going to approve sin. But if we just write everybody off that we disagree with or we think is sinning, how are we going to be used to go point them to Jesus? It's the sick who need a doctor. Well, they're sick. Well, good. Maybe they'll get sick enough that they realize they're not happy where they are. Go ahead, John. One of my favorite verses in the Bible when you have that is, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. I love that. And such were some of you. I love it. When I asked people, the homosexuals go to hell, I said, no, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Go back to James chapter 4. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. We're going to talk in a second about how we judge the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He's, he's able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This word that speaks against could also be translated slanders. Go to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, look at verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close, fr separates close friends. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Go over to Proverbs 17, look at verse 9. 
Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. We got to be real careful because we don't even realize that this problem is insidious and it's in all of us, all of us, me included. Well, we have a tendency to tell other people about other people in the church, but we couch it spiritually and we say, I'm only sharing with this so you know how to pray. Let me tell you what Susie's doing right now. What we're really doing is saying, look how spiritual I am because I see her sin, but I want you to pray with me about it. And a lot of times we'll even make judgments about somebody's heart and their motives for why they do something when we don't know. The only reason she's helping the pastor is because she has this kind of a motive or whatever. We don't know. And so we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge we don't know. And Lord, I want to be God and I want to make decisions about all this stuff. And I want to call the shots. And God says, actually, without realizing it, when you make judgments about all that stuff, you're actually judging me. And you're judging the law. Well, how do we judge God and judge the law when we make these judgments? Well, let me ask you this question. Who wrote the law? God did. So if God wrote the law, and he sums it up into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, correct? All right. That sums up the law and the prophets. That sums up the word of God. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, when you judge your neighbor, are you loving your neighbor? No. So you've really just decided that I know God's law says that I'm to love my neighbor, but I'm not going to do that. You've now just become a judge of the law. You're deciding whether or not you agree with the law. Oh, by the way, we've got to be all careful, don't we? Because we all have a problem with this, don't we? Aren't there things that we like in his word and others we don't? Are there things in his word that we would never do and others that we do? That he says not to? Without realizing it, we all want to be a judge of the law. We all want to decide which parts we like and which parts we don't. Which things are sin and which things really aren't sin. Well, that's sin. That's okay, but what about this other stuff that you're doing? Well, you know, I'm not really sure that's that serious. You've all of a sudden become a judge of the law. And when you become a judge of the law, you're now judging God who wrote the law. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you really want to go there? When God comes and meets with Job face to face, he actually asked Job this question. He said, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Now, I'm going to tell you something that you need to hear. I've done it, too. We've all done it. By the way, how many of us trying to share the gospel have ever had someone say, well, how could a loving God and then fill out, you know, the rest of the sentence? We've heard that a few times, haven't we? They want to be judge. They want to determine the right way and the wrong way God should be. They're judging the law and they're judging God himself. And all of us have done it. And you may do it tomorrow. But aren't they also looking to see your reaction to it? Sometimes they're wanting to see your reaction, but at the same time... The judge that they are? Yeah, again, there's lots of levels to that as well. But by even going down that road, they have that same problem that we all have. We all... Uh, let's be honest. I thank God that he healed me of my cancer. 
But if he chooses to have it come back, or even in another form, does he have that right? But I can tell you right now, I might have a few questions. And to pretend that I wouldn't is a lie. I, I, I know that ultimately, down the road, I'll surrender to his will because he's God and I'm not. But at the same time, I got this problem in me where I want to call the shots. I want to be God. Go to chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 17 and see how this all ties together. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Now, has anybody seen the common thread in this section yet? If you haven't, we got to start over. What's the problem in verses 11 and 12? We want to be what? We want to be God. We want to be the judge. We want to be God. Oh, in verses 13 through 17, we want to be God. We want to say, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. But actually, if we're really honest, we don't know how it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to be. But, but let me say this to you. Making plans is not wrong. Too many people will take this kind of a teaching and they'll say, well, I don't want to be, take God's role. So just whatever's going to happen, whatever's going to happen. God's going to be God and I'll just let God do. No, no, no. The Bible actually tells us that we are to make plans. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It's not wrong to make plans. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. God says, go to the ant, O sluggard, and learn from the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In other words, the ant prepares and makes plans for the future. Learn from that. Go to Proverbs chapter 20. Look at verse 18. Proverbs 20, verse 18. I gave, gave you the, I got the wrong passage here. That, that's, that's a good one, but that's not what I'm looking at. Here it is. It was 18. I was reading verse 10 and think it was verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. Plans are established by counsel and by wise guidance, make war. In other words, have, make some plans. By the way, didn't Jesus say, Hey, before you follow me, consider the cost. Think it through. So making plans is not a bad thing. But we need to keep in mind that as we plan, who's ultimately in charge of how it all works out? God is. And by the way, I'm going to show you two places. Go to Romans 15. That's how Paul lived his life. He had lots of plans. But he also understood that God was in control of how it all worked out. Romans 15, look at verses 22 through 26. Paul says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. 
But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come, come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul says, I've planned and wanted to go visit you, and actually here's my plan. I want to come see you guys in Rome on the way to Spain. Before I get there, though, I'm going to do what God's wanting me to do, and that's head to Jerusalem to drop off this love gift that's been collected for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. By the way, as we've already remembered from our study of Romans, he ended up getting to Rome, but not how he planned. But he had plans. It's not a bad thing. Go to 1 Corinthians 16. You're in, you're in Romans. Go over one book to 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verses 5 through 9. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me in my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So did you catch how many times he would say, perhaps, if the Lord wills, you know? He has plans. Folks, God wants us to make plans. He wants us to consider the future and have an idea of where you'd like to be in a few years and whatever, and what you'd like to do in the next month or so. But how many of us have gotten upset when our plans didn't work out the way we wanted them to? We all have, haven't we? And have you ever noticed over the years that God loves to just once we think we've got it all figured out, flip the apple card upside down on us and change our plans. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. Look at verse 9. John, oh, John was just here. He, said, he just left out the back there. He had planned on being, getting married in December. He just found out that his marriage is getting moved up to, to November. That's not a bad change of plans. Proverbs 16, look at verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jump over one book to the book of Ecclesiastes. I love this one. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Now, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will never sow. And he who regards the clouds will never reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. So in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, he says, look, God's going to do what God's going to do. If the tree falls to the north or the south, that's where it's going to be. God's in control. Yet, you could just sit back and say, well, I don't know what God's plan is, and I don't know what really God's going to do, so I'm not going to do anything. Remember, that's the third servant who was afraid and hid and buried their talent in the ground and did nothing. That servant, by the way, wasn't saved and was rejected. 
He then goes on and he says, look, in the morning, throw your seed out. In the evening, do something else. You don't know which one's going to work out. But if you sit there and watch the wind, you'll never sow. And if you actually regard the rain clouds, you'll never harvest. And how many of us won't make a decision until we know how it's going to work out? And what does Solomon say, God say through Solomon? Just like you don't know how God puts his spirit inside that baby in the womb. You don't know how that works. So man can't know God's plans. Oh, didn't we remember in Romans chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, he says, who's ever known the mind of God? Who's ever been his counselor? And then after he's saying how you'll never figure him out, you'll never trace his steps. He then says in chapter 12, but lay your body on the altar and he'll reveal his will. You'll know his good, pleasing and perfect will. He'll show you how to walk with him a day at a time. And I can tell you this much, and I have to be reminded of it daily because my flesh is still here and I still want to be God and I still want to call the shots and I still want to be in control of my life. As I look back over my life and I see the hand of God, things that I dreaded ended up being some of the best things that ever happened to me. I remember when God called me out of the pastorate into this traveling ministry 17 years ago. I've never been more scared in my entire life. You know what scares me more now? Going back into the pastorate. I love the life that he has for me. But at the time when he was calling me out of it, I was scared to death. My kids will all tell you, and all the times that we moved from one church to another as pastor, they all cried every time we left that church. They cried because they loved the people in the church family. And God's moving us to a place we don't know. And they'll all tell you now with all the three different moves that they've had in their life, they'll say, so glad God moved us each time because the next place God had something good for us there too. And it's even better. And God has his plans. So we have to renew our minds and say, I don't want to be God. Even though I want to be God, I don't want to be God because God's better at it than me. But did you know that God actually encourages the gathering information? I'm not going to have it read the story to you, but I, you can go back and double check me on this. I'm going to just fill you in on something about my own self. For years, whenever I thought about the story of the nation of Israel being told by God to go into the promised land the first time, you know how they put a committee together? And the committee went and researched it. And the committee came back. And two of the people, Caleb and Joshua, said, hey, God said it. Let's go. But the rest of the committee said, oh, no, no, there's giants there. And, and yeah, there's great produce. And, but there's so many people and they're so much bigger. We're like grasshoppers to them. And they chickened out. For years, I thought that they should have never put that committee together. They should have just done what God said. Until I read Numbers 13. And write it down. We'll look at it later on. And Numbers, actually... I'm not going to read you the whole story. Just look at verses 1 through 3 of Numbers 13. When I actually read the story again, my jaw hit the floor. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, one, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, and all the men who were heads of the people of Israel. So when they put this committee together, who told them to put the committee together? God did. Who told them to go gather the information? God did. Here's what the problem happened, though. They then, after gathering the information, 
made their decision from their own wisdom of what the information looked like to them versus what God had said. I know God said this, but I don't know how that's going to work. And folks, many of us over the years and many churches over the years have heard God speak, but he asked us to do something that we looked a little bit too big. We could never raise that much money. And we didn't do it because we used our own wisdom. Y'all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, don't you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and never, ever, ever lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he, what? He will direct your paths. But he's the one that tells us to go gather information and process it. But now listen to him on what he tells you to do. Don't let the information you gather in your own wisdom get in the way. Beware of arrogance. Beware of thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. Keep a proper perspective of God's significance and not yours. Go back to James chapter 4. Isn't that what he just said? He says, come now, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town and we're going to spend a year there and we're going to trade and we're going to make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So in the time we have left, we're going to deal with verse 17, but look at it in the context what is the right thing to do in the context of chapter 4, verses 11 through 16? Don't judge your brother. And don't assume you know how things are going to work out, but walk in obedience to God. Make plans. Walk in obedience to what you think God's saying. And let him have it work out the way he wants. And you'll be blessed if you just obey. That's the right thing to do. And if you do it, good for you. But if you don't, it's sin. Now, what I want to do tonight in the time we have is I'm only going to give you five of them. I'm going to come at verse 17 from a little bit of a different angle. We always heard the one who knows the right thing to do, God's will, and doesn't do it, sins. So let's go at it from another angle. Why don't we just find out what God's word says God's will is? I'm, there's more than what I'm going to give you, but I'm going to give you five. Number one is this. God, it's God's will that people be saved. First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two, verses three and four. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. By the way, it's God's will that everyone be saved. That doesn't mean everybody will be. But it is God's will. And if God has opened your eyes to salvation and you know it and you reject it, and you know what his will is, that you be saved, but you say, nah, no, thank you. Guess what? That's sin. We don't have to turn there. You all know 2 Peter 3, 9, how God not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 17 and 18. Number two is this. It's God's will that we be spirit filled. And that actually means under the control of the spirit who already lives within us. In chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled or be being filled with the Spirit. Now, keep in mind, this being filled with the Spirit is just a simple allowing the, G the Spirit of God, who, Jesus, who's already in you, to have control. It's not saying that you got to go to a special preacher and have him lay hands on you or go to a special service where the Spirit's being poured out. Too many of us sing songs like, Holy Spirit, rain down. Listen, he's already within you. Second Peter chapter, sorry, Colossians chapter two, verse nine says in Christ, the deity lived in bodily form and you have received fullness in him. Second Peter chapter one, verses three and following. God's divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him so that we can partake of the divine nature and the promises that are there. In other words, when you got saved and Jesus came to live within you, are you lacking any of the spirit? No, you have the fullness of the Spirit within you, but be being filled is to daily yield ourselves to Him. Remember, He's given us a choice, not only to be saved or not, but after we're saved, He lets us choose each day whether we're going to walk with Him or walk in the flesh. That's why we're daily to renew our minds and lay our flesh on the altar and learn how to walk in the Spirit. If we've been born again in the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, let us learn how to keep in step with the Spirit. And it's God's will that we be being filled under the control of the Holy Spirit. And that's available to you. It's the will of God. And if, he, if you know that he wants you to do that, we'll do it. I'm going to clarify that in just a second. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 1 Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm going to keep reading, but that's number three. It's the will of God that we be sanctified. All right. Your sanctification is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man... But God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, I think kind of James said it this way. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, you're sinning. What's the will of God? That we be sanctified, that we actually live holy lives. We've already been justified, declared righteous because we've been saved and dwelt by the Spirit of God. One day we're going to be glorified and receive our salvation when it is already ours and guaranteed. But in this meantime, we're in the process of being sanctified where God is conforming us into the image of his son. That's why we have so many passages written into Christians about don't judge your brother, don't boast, don't do. We still struggle with sin. Even though we've been saved and we're guaranteed eternity and we know the Lord and love the Lord, we still are in this wrestling match. But it's his will that we yield to this process of sanctification and especially when it comes to sexual sin. 
Don't defraud each other in this manner. Do you know that the Bible also says it's the will of God that we be submissive to governing authorities? Did I really have to go there? Go to 1 Peter 2, look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. By the way, was the emperor a good guy or a bad guy when, when Peter wrote this? He was a bad guy. Was, was he for God or against God? Whew, he was against God. Let me just say to you folks, you may not agree with those that are in authority over us, but we are to honor them. We're to pray for them and we're to be humble. We're to speak the truth. We're never to say sin is sin or sorry, sin is not sin. We're, we're actually, we're, we're to speak the truth that sin is sin. But listen closely, we're actually to do it in such a way, the Bible says, that actually they respect us. We're to actually, it's the will of God that we be submissive to governing authorities. Oh, the Bible also says that it's sometimes his will for us to suffer for his sake. Go to 1 Peter 3. Look at verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. By the way, if you remember back in James chapter 1, it says this. It says, don't just be hearers of the word of God, but be doers. Well, we've just seen five places where the Bible said this is the will of God. And if you know the will of God and you don't do it, you sin. Well, Jim... Got to be honest with you, we finished the Bible study and I feel worse because you just piled on me a whole list of stuff that I I'm not fully doing. And you've just pretty much said I'm a sinner. Yes. Welcome to the club. But I got good news for you. The same God who gives us these commands is the same one who said, apart from me, you can do nothing. By showing us these things that we can't do. Let me back you up real quick. When God showed the lost world and showed you before you were saved his law and said, keep it perfectly, did he expect you to keep it perfectly? No. Why did he tell you to keep it perfectly so that you would what? You would say, I can't. I've tried and I can't. And God says, good, now you're ready for the good news. 
you just rely on me and I'll give you righteousness. You don't earn it. That's why John the Baptist came on the scene and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the only way you're going to be able to respond to the kingdom and receive the kingdom is if you acknowledge you're a sinner and you need help. Oh, by the way, the commands for Christians after salvation are the same thing. When God says, be perfect for I'm perfect, be holy because I'm holy. Hopefully you don't say, all right, Lord, I'm going to. Lord, it's your will that everyone be saved. It's your will that I be spirit filled. It's your will that I be sanctified. It's your will that I be submitted to governing authorities. It's your will that I even may suffer. Lord, if that's your will, I'm going to do it because I'm not going to sin. Good luck. But actually, hopefully, that feeling that we all have of he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. If you go, man, I'm in trouble. God says, good. Good. Because I want you now to come to me humbly and say, Lord, these are some things that you want to see in me and I can't do it. But you said you would. And you also said that you're not in a rush and that you will work on us in, our, in your own time, in your own way. And that's why I'm not to make judgments about my brother and my sister, because we're each going to stand before you, and we're each going to be held accountable for you, to, to, before you. And you're able to make us all stand. And as much as I love to quote that he who began a good work in me will be able to finish it, Lord, may I believe that you'll be able to finish it in the people around me as well. Lord, let's go work on whatever it is you've got for me to work on today. And you watch how the Spirit of God says, good, I just want to take some moldable clay and I want to work with it. Too many of us have had too much preaching that says, go do the right thing. We actually need a bunch of people that don't get up every morning trying to do the right thing, but have get up every morning and say, Lord, I need you. I want to walk with you today. You've got my plans. I have some plans, but you got the plans. I have some things I thought I was going to do today, but however we go, I want you to be in charge. And as I head down the road, I think you have for me, because I'm not going to sit and watch the wind or the rain. I'm going to do what I think you have for me. I'm going to let the results be what you have in mind. And I'm going to thank you ahead of time for what is going to happen today, because you're a good God. By the way, if you actually get up every morning and had that kind of an attitude, you might even smile at the lady at the coffee place in the morning. And he might even use you. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. By the way, commercial, if you've read ahead into chapter 5 and you say, I don't need to come next week because I'm not rich, you better come. It's for all of us. We'll see you next week.